Welcome to our listeners. You're tuning in to a special podcast brought to you by the Reading Muslims Project of the Institute of Islamic Studies at the University of Toronto. Reading Muslims is the Institute of Islamic Studies Connaught Global Challenge Project at the U of T. Its aim is to bring researchers together to interrogate the role of textuality in Islamic studies. One of its key areas of focus, or hubs as we like to call them, is the study of Islamophobia and the state surveillance of Muslims. We have with us today Elizabeth Shackman Hurd, Professor of Political Science and Crown Chair in Middle East Studies at Northwestern University. She's one of the leads for the Islamophobia and State Surveillance Hub of the Reading Muslims Project. My name is Yusuf Sufi, and I am your host today. Dr. Hurd, welcome. Thank you so much, Yusuf. Great to be here. Dr. Shackman Hurd, you've written extensively on the politics of religious freedom most notably in the book Beyond Religious Freedom. You've traced the history of the U.S. discourse around promoting religious freedom abroad. I'm wondering if you can tell us how Muslims fit into this history. Yes, this is a fantastic question, Yusuf. I'm happy to discuss it. I think one of the most important things we can do when we start talking about religious freedom is situated in American history as part of a very particular history in which religious freedom is understood to be fundamental to the United States. It's like apple pie or baseball. It is the at the core of the American project and is something that I, we often fail to understand because we think of religious freedom as something that's just out there. It's a norm. It's a legal standard. It's something that we can identify. We know it when we see it. We feel it when we have it and we can describe it and help others to achieve it. And I think the reality is when you start looking a little bit closer at the politics of religious freedom and efforts to enforce religious freedom as a legal standard, it becomes very complicated. And it very specifically becomes bound up in a very particular understanding of what it means to be free, what it means to be religious, and what it means to be American. And all of those uh, understandings are baked into our concept of religious freedom. And so what we have then is an understanding of religion that adheres to primarily uh, Protestant normative understandings of religion, understandings of freedom that are bound up in complicated combinations of enlightenment notions of freedom, of uh, notions of freedom associated with the particular forms of Christianity that have been most prevalent in the U.S., and with other more contemporary understandings of freedom, such as, um, for example, uh, market freedom and neoliberal understandings of what it means to be free in that sense. So we have this grab bag of uh, what it could possibly mean to be religious and what it could possibly mean to be free. And people hold on to various aspects of these definitions of religious freedom and then assume that we have something universal and stable that can then be sort of transferred to other contexts, to other countries, to other places and times. This, however, proves to be much more complicated than it looks at first glance. And we have seen in the U.S. efforts to promote religious freedom as a political instrument in American foreign policy, we have seen a particular emphasis on Muslim-majority countries as the targets of those efforts, the recipient of American largesse to promote religious freedom. And I think that part of this is uh, a a question of 9-11, and part of it goes back to the founding of our country and the ways in which uh, particular, as I said, Protestant normative understandings of religion have 
have sort of been the default, the dominating discourse, the most prevalent way of understanding religion. And so other formations and other ways of living in the world, such as, for example, Muslim traditions, but not only Muslims, are seen as somehow naturally deviant from those norms and in need of particular kinds of reform. And what does that reform look like? The reform looks like bringing freedom because that's what Americans understand themselves to be doing and to have been doing for many, many years, um, decades, centuries. So there's this kind of impetus or drive to, uh, to reform Muslims, whether at home or abroad. And this links to the, the project that you're working on, which is so important, I think. It, it is really uh, interesting to think about the ways in which there are connections between US domestic surveillance, state surveillance and governance of Muslims and, and interpretations and understanding of Islam versus how the US projects its power into the world globally. And those connections, I think, have been poorly understood and not particularly deeply or intensively or thoughtfully explored. So I think one of the challenges will indeed be to think about the ways in which uh, the U.S. uh, projection of uh, its uh, foreign policy objectives, such as the promotion of religious freedom, abroad are indeed connected to domestic surveillance initiatives or domestic reform initiatives at home, which include, but aren't limited to, surveillance of uh, Muslims, countering violent extremism, uh, and other various kinds of uh, reform initiatives and ways of making sure that Muslims are towing the line and behaving in a way that's understood to be uh, religiously free and politically acceptable. So has anybody ever made the link between the promotion of religious freedom within U.S. policy abroad and the fact that within the U.S. itself, Muslims have to oftentimes face the surveillance state and that that might be itself a bit of a contradiction between the two? Absolutely. So there are um, unfortunately all too many examples of this kind of contradiction and this, um, some might even go further and say hypocrisy. Uh, One of the most flagrant examples was something that I wrote about a number of years ago for Boston Review. um, And that involved a lawsuit against the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom, USERF, which is a government commission that is appointed to oversee the bureaucratic and governmental infrastructure for promoting religious freedom in the U.S. government. And there was a lawsuit brought against them for discrimination in their employment practices, very specifically for discriminating on the basis of religion against a very prominent and uh, well-known Muslim American woman uh, who was an attorney and was to be hired as an attorney. And the documents that came out of that were, it was hard to get information. It was um, a little bit sketchy, but there were some very convincing emails and other documents that various uh, reporters got a hold of. And I kind of dug into that a little bit and wrote about it for this piece that I mentioned. Um, and it, it really was incredible because you saw here uh this notion that, you know, kind of what we thought it was about, this idea that, you know, Americans have religious freedom and now we're going to help other countries achieve it. 
and what they pretend it's about and what they act like it's about and what they believe it's about is actually not at all what it's about. This is about uh, a particular understanding of, what, like I said, of what it means to be truly religious, what it means to be free. And it was just not, it, uh, you know, when a Muslim American wants to come in and work on these questions and uh, become involved in these issues, it was seen as somehow uh, a betrayal or that she was somehow going to be a mole or that she would be politically taking positions that were against U.S. government interests in some of the conflicts that involve religion and politics around the world, and she was automatically suspect. And so we saw right there kind of a very a small glimpse, a tip of the iceberg sort of glimpse of the ways in which it's, you know, it, it's not just rank hypocrisy. Of course, it's hypocritical, but it's really a sense that many of the individuals involved in this project of promoting religious freedom and overseeing its promotion and advocacy have this um, astonishing amount of hubris and self-certainty and uh, self-assuredness that what they are doing is the correct way and the only way and that there's something um, self-righteous about it in this politicization of religious freedom that becomes much bigger than religious freedom. It becomes, you have to, you know, it's my way or the highway. And this becomes a very, very powerful civilizational discourse. I would say even an imperial discourse uh, where it's a sort of white man's burden, you could say. Um, this idea that you're going to bring this way of living and being to other people and we're going to impose that on, it on them. And we're automatically suspicious of anyone who uh, may have different ways of being in the world and may not necessarily share the same uh, white Protestant background. And there also are important racial aspects to this that I didn't explore in the book that you mentioned beyond religious freedom. But had I been writing it now, I think I would have, because I think that it is impossible to talk and to study and to critique religious freedom without considering the important racial dimensions of this discourse as well, because I think that it is indeed deeply racialized. You know, you, you somewhat foreshadowed my next question, which was uh, in relation to civilizational discourse. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that, about the link between religious freedom and civilizational discourse? What is civilizational talk? How do Muslim texts figure into it, considering our concern with Muslim textuality and its relationship to Islamophobia and, uh, and national security? Right. So um, the notion of civilizational discourse, I think most people would probably track it back to Sam Huntington's book, The Clash of Civilizations, and to specifically this idea that there are five, maybe six big civilizations that have uh, very distinct uh, ways of being in the world and that they are bound in particular circumstances to clash with one another. And that after the end of the Cold War, these civilizational fault lines would then become the defining features of world politics. This thesis was very powerful and influential. And I think that one way to understand religious freedom discourse at, is as one puzzle piece in a much broader civilizational discourse, meaning that religious freedom is something that the West has 
and that we are going to export to others. Um, and that if we encounter obstacles in that process, it is not because there may be valid pushback to having uh, sort of to Western imperial power. It's not that. It is rather that others are inherently uh, less able to understand. They are less developed. They are less ready to see the merits of this way of being free and these ways of being religious and this particular American notion. And so there's sort of a hierarchy, you could say, that starts to take shape. And it's not always crystal clear. And it will not be something that if you go and interview people in these commissions that they will say, oh, yes, there's a hierarchy of civilizations. But it is implicit. It is built into the structure of the entire project as a whole. Um, and that is to say, it is presumed that the Western way of doing things is superior to other ways of doing things and that others need to be kind of brought up to speed. And if they can't be brought up to speed because they're pushing back, it's because they are underdeveloped, less developed. They haven't been educated. There have been all kinds of arguments in history. I mean, Montesquieu would say that people were uh, part of their political dispositions were determined by the environment in which they live. So people in hot climates were less inclined to toward representative democracy. So there are all kinds of arguments that are marshaled in order to try to make a case that certain peoples are less uh, inherently uh, qualified to uh, to receive these great Western ideas and to have them uh, expressed through their political and social institutions in a particular way from your answer is that on the one hand, civilizational talk, it has a deep colonial history. You mentioned Montesquieu and you mentioned imperialism. It was a standard way of talking about the non-Western world, non-white Europe. But you said also that it's become implicit now. It's, uh, it's, it's still continuing. This type of colonial discourse is still continuing, but it's less obvious than it used to be. Do you mind you know, elaborating upon that, because I find that really fascinating. We tend to think about colonialism as something of the past. We're still dealing with some some of the, the consequences of it, but uh, we no longer think in those terms anymore. But you're saying something else. You're saying, well, actually, we do. A lot of our thinking is still influenced by that civilizational talk, even when a politician, a prominent bureaucrat is not going to explicitly say, you know, we're the best civilization. Although they often do, as you saw in last night's vice presidential debate. Yeah, I think that these languages of uh, imperial power are no longer, they definitely do take different forms and different shapes. The example that jumps to mind for me is development. So I worked uh, at USAID, the Agency for International Development, for a couple of years before going to graduate school. And one thing that I started to understand very clearly is that even the people who were uh, most critical of the U.S. and most concerned, genuinely concerned about people in other places and viewed them as equals and as human beings rather than as sort of subjects of American power, even those people were bound up in a much larger system of development. So we were working at the Agency for International Development and the presumptions were that we were to go around the world and develop other countries. And the, the built into that is the assumption that the US already knows what it means to be developed, that we are developed, and that we are now going to bring development in all of its various forms and features and institutions and legal systems to other places. 
Um, that kind of language and those kind of assumptions, I think, is an example of the sort of new guys in which are not so new because development's not really new, but the newer guys in which we see civilizing and imperial projects taking shape. Um, I think freedom is another language that has been almost entirely, not not entirely, but almost entirely co-opted by uh, this this. Uh, this imperial and civilizational discourse of the notion of who has freedom and who doesn't have freedom and who has the most freedom. And that's particularly salient in the US and probably less so in places um, like Canada and Europe, but it still resonates. And uh, so I think that it's worth looking twice when we see invocations of these concepts like freedom and development and civilization and American values and religious freedom and saying, what is this really about? What are we talking about here? Who are we talking about? What is being promoted by whom and in whose interests? And it's often a much more complicated story than what you get if you just go to the website of, uh, you know, the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom or the U.S. Agency for International Development. And unpacking that story is part of what interested me in that last book. Thank you. You know, a, a follow up on the last question. You mentioned civilizational talk its history, its consequences, but how do, how do Muslim texts figure into this history? You know, how does civilizational talk today consider Muslim texts, the Quran, for instance, or, or other books? Yeah, I think that there's probably a really strong emphasis or urge to read the texts and presume that there is something in the text that is causing Muslim individuals to behave in certain ways. And that there is a particularly tight or intensive linkage between what the text says and what the individual does in the context of Muslim texts and Muslim traditions. And so this this presumption then, the presumption then is that the texts need to be interpreted in a way such as to encourage moderation. And moderation is another uh, one of these really complicated concepts that a lot of people have written a lot about, but it gets thrown around in policy circles and religious freedom policy circles as the kind of be all end all. We want, when it comes to Muslims, we want moderates. We want them to be moderates. And it's interesting because we don't hear this uh, language very often when it comes to uh, Judaism, for example, or Buddhism. We don't hear this constant refrain, you know, Muslim moderates, Muslim moderates, we hear it all the time. And so I think there's a sense that the texts are they're somehow structured so as to incite violence and also to incite a more intense uh, adherence to the text than other traditions. And I think it would be really interesting to think about why that is the case. I think that it's probably a really complicated story and it probably depends on which texts we're talking about and in which context they're being read and interpreted in this way. But my sense is that there is uh, kind of an exceptional fear and suspicion when it comes to Muslim textuality and the relationship to political uh, behavior, political ideas, political thought, and political action. And that needs to be, and I'm expecting your project will do precisely this, questioned 
and it needs then to be, uh, then we also need to offer an alternative and say, here are some other ways of asking these questions. So maybe it's not only a question of rereading the text in a way that shows them to be more moderate or to be subject to many different interpretations, which is of course true. But we need to go further than that saying, why are we asking, why are we, why are we asking these questions right now of this tradition? What is the source of this suspicion? What is this really about? What are we really afraid of? And why is this such an issue of public concern and even paranoia? And I think when we start to think about that, we get into some of the bigger questions that really do need to be posed that I'm hoping your project and expecting that your project will definitely be addressing. Right. It's almost as though by asking the question, can there be a reformed interpretation of Islam? The the gaze is put on the religion and not on a wider set of considerations, political considerations, a wider history. It's almost as though it, it hides that. Exactly. And this is one of the most important takeaway points of my book when it comes to the power of religious freedom discourse. It has the power to efface, to displace, to obscure a whole host of other questions and considerations and factors um, involving law and politics and social mores and histories and colonial histories. I mean, a whole host of issues, depending on the context, are completely swept away and not only swept under the rug, really, but just they're made invisible. They're marginalized to the point where you can't see them at all anymore. And you're only able to focus on this particular concern, which is how are we going to reform Muslims? And how are we going to reform this tradition? And I think that that absolutely, you're absolutely right, that this this forces us away from the questions that really require our attention. How do we live together? What are the terms under which we're going to coexist? How are we going to understand these vast, um, diverse, rich historical traditions in the context in which they're actually lived, as opposed to abstracted from those contexts and reified and taken to be some kind of, you know, strange, foreign, deterministic, uh, you know, recipe for behavior? You know, this is just, it's absolutely... um, it does not reflect the way in which uh, people actually live out their traditions. And this is something I think religious studies as a discipline has really shown us and has been very powerfully, uh, very made a very powerful and significant contribution to our understanding of religion and the complex ways in which it's embedded in uh, and reflected in and also uh, changes in significant ways as a result of its uh, social location, its historical location, institutional location. These things can't be separated. And so the notion that there are these texts that are just out there telling people how to be and how to live and how to act is deeply problematic and really cannot uh, ever get at the heart of what we, I think, need to be really talking about today, which is how do we live together and how do we want to live together? Yeah, right. You know, on a personal note, I've been really inspired by your methodology in Beyond Religious Freedom, the method of let's ask the questions that are being uh, that are that are uh, uh, being obscured uh, in thinking about my own work, thinking about uh, the concept of radicalization. So mm-hmm. so thank you for 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 that, for inspiring me in those ways. My next question relates to a concept that's uh, prominent in your book. You've noted that there's a notion of the two faces of faith that animates international politics. 
one face is moderate and therefore fits well with democracy and liberalism. And the other is radical, intolerant, medieval, and therefore has no place in modern society. Now, in my own research on Muslims in North America, I've come to see how this discourse has had a great impact on state policy, the surveillance of Muslims and the justification of violence during the war on terror. What fuels this vision of religion and what are our, our, our alternatives as academics, but also as citizens uh, of North American states? Uh, what other forms of grappling with uh, religion uh, and in particular uh, with Muslims might we develop? Yeah, um, that ironically, I think part of the challenge will be to stop asking questions about Muslims specifically um, and start asking about the actual subjects that need to be debated, whether it's uh, healthcare um, provision or educational policy or the legal uh, system and how it's structured. Um, representation, questions of race, questions of political power, those, all of those issues I think need to be our focus right now. And um, the two faces of faith is premised. Well, first of all, I stole the idea as uh, from Tony Blair, which I talk about in the book. He actually used that phrase. Well, I didn't steal the idea, I stole the phrase. I have a very different reading of it than Tony Blair does, not surprisingly. But I stole the phrase from him and he used it, as you said, to refer to this idea are these two faces of religion. There's like good religion and there's bad religion. And so this idea is premised on the notion, first of all, that religion, as we were just talking about in response to your last question about textuality, that religion is something that can be abstracted from the context in which it is lived and embedded and then somehow discussed as if it were just this neutral thing floating there out in the air. And that really has not, is not the case, has never been the case. And as I said, religious studies scholars have shown us very well over and over again how to talk about religion in that abstract way is really almost to talk about nothing. We don't even know what it is that we're talking about. So this idea of the two faces of faith is deeply problematic, but it's also, not surprisingly, very powerful. Why? Because it's so easy to understand. And policymakers and not just policymakers, because I don't want to vilify them because they're just human beings, but a lot of us, a lot of people are really afraid to talk about religion because they don't really know that they don't really know what they're supposed to say. It's not good dinner table conversation to have strong opinions on religion. You know, they're not really sure. And so here's a framework that makes sense. You can have, you can either have good religion or you can have bad religion, good religion. The government should promote it, should maybe even support it. Uh, as our Supreme Court now would argue. Uh, and it's something that as long as it's non-sectarian and non-oppositional, something that uh, should be uh, widely supported. Bad religion, on the other hand, there we need to take steps. And here is where we can see the nexus or the link between domestic counter but countering violent extremism present, so state surveillance programs in order to suppress extremism and American foreign religious freedom policy, and specifically with regard to Muslims. This is where the connection will come out. So that bad religion, religion that causes people to dissent politically from American values, such as support for Israel, for example, religion that causes people to um, consider making uh, not only political dissent, but possibly uh, supporting policies uh, that are not acceptable 
to the United States and its allies, and this could be in any range of different areas. Religion that is understood to cause all of these forms of dissenting political behavior, that religion needs to be stamped out. And this is where I think we get into uh, these super contorted debates where we have abstracted religion from its context and we have acted as if religion could then cause people to do all of these bad things. And so the idea then is really that uh, we begin by kind of diagnosing the good religion, bad religion. We sort of see it, how it's expressed through the religion bureaucracy in the U.S., how it comes to structure the way that the media uh, the way that politicians, the way that other public figures and talking heads talk about religion. They talk about it in terms of moderation versus extremism. And we see this uh, permeate our lives so that when you turn on the TV, if people are talking about religion, it may there's a good chance it'll have some you know variant of this theme playing along in the background, whether it's good or bad, it's moderate, extreme, et cetera, et cetera. And that whole discourse, that whole package needs to be understood as a very particular way of talking about religion and not the only way. And so this goes to the second half of your question, which is what are the alternatives, which is what everyone always asks me. Well, so if you think it's so problematic, how would you fix it? You know, what does Beth world look like? And, you know, that's a really hard question to answer because first of all, I mean, if only I had the power, right? But uh, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, uh, think that my job is to propose a superior alternative. It's to help us to see better what we have in front of us, to understand, hey, this is one way of talking about these questions, but there are probably other ways, and there are some serious costs attached to this. Those costs are being borne uh, very heavily, in particular, by communities who are minoritized by these discourses. What does that mean? That's a long story, but basically I'm talking, in this case, about Muslims and Muslim Americans and Muslim Canadians, Muslim Europeans, who are somehow treated as if and taught to see themselves even as somehow less a part of the community, somehow less um, welcomed, just like the um, Pakistani American lawyer I mentioned at the commission, who was uh, who was her job was rescinded um, due to the fact that she was Muslim American. So this this kind of hermeneutics of suspicion, mm. and I think that that is really, um, you know, this is a really heavy, heavy price to pay, and it's wrong. It's just wrong. And uh, my colleague, Brandon Ingram, and I co-taught a course called Representing Muslims about uh, these tropes and these themes and the ways in which Muslims and um, Islamic tradition and Islamic history and uh, civilizational discourse and all of these issues, questions of race, are bound up uh, together uh, in the war on terror um, and also beyond it in a lot of other subtle ways in which we talk about religion and we talk about Muslims. And we're trying to decenter that narrative and say, look, this is really problematic. And you may not, you know, particularly white folks, particularly non-Muslim folks, and I know that there are many white people who are Muslim and they're not, they're not trying to suggest that there aren't, but we are not paying the price of this discriminatory you know, uh, uh, discriminatory uh, set of habits and governmental actions and state surveillance and uh, media presumptions and prejudices, but other people are. 
And so it's our responsibility. It's not Muslim Americans' responsibility. It's first and foremost, those of us who are not Muslim Americans, it's our responsibility to stand up and say, this isn't right. Let's talk about what's going on here. Let's first of all, explain and understand what's going on. And then let's explore some of the alternatives. And so that's what we sought to do in our teaching and in the project that we've been working on together. And I think that probably the best way to move forward is through teaching and through these kinds of public education and public facing efforts to recenter the conversation and say, wait a minute, there are other roads that we could take. We don't have to go down this road when we're talking about religion and politics. There are other ways to do it. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to do in my work going forward is to show that and not just say it. Right. You know, uh, it's, it's quite a compelling view of, of Bethlehem. As, <laughs> well, you know, I've been shut in my house for seven months, so it's getting pretty scary over here. <laughs> Actually, your, your last answer uh, touched upon this, this next question, which is that um, it relates to the Radix project. So you're part of this Radix project. You've had a conference at uh, Sciences Po in Paris, specifically questioning the politics of counter-extremism. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this project and how it relates to uh, the Reading Muslim Project? What do you think the Reading Muslim Project can do to support existing research in this field? Yeah, this is terrific. And I'm so excited that you guys have received this really prestigious funding for your project. Um, I think one of the, the things that we share are this commitment to first understanding and then contributing in our own small way to a shift in public discourse around these questions. In your case, around questions of state surveillance, Muslims, the links, the presumed links and the actual links to questions of textuality broadly understood. In our case, uh, the question of extremism and radicalization um, writ large. And I think that we are actually working the same terrain in a lot of ways. I also think, however, that uh, our project, the Radex project, was created much more as a network of uh, individuals and their representative institutions. So we are a network, a global network of institutions with partners in North America, Europe, and the Middle East. And that network is a staging ground. It's, uh, it offers a point of nodes, a set of uh, communicative channels for people to connect with each other around various projects that they are each working on individually in their own separate institutions and also as individual researchers. So it's more of a network, whereas your project, as I understand it, is a bit more focused and institutionally grounded and also going to be able to offer a really deep dive into the four different nodes um, that you have created and established. And so I think that we have slightly different, you know, it's different formats and slightly different foci, but I think that there's a significant overlap in these projects. And I do hope and I expect that one of the most fruitful points of contact between the projects will be uh, connecting people who are asking similar kinds of questions but asking them in very different national contexts, in different legal jurisdictions, with different sets of constraints and possibilities in terms of the resources that they bring to bear to those questions. And so we can connect, for example, uh, with journalists here who we've established some connections with and connect them over to the work that you're doing there, right, in Toronto, and say, okay, 
what are the similarities and differences between the state surveillance projects here in Chicago versus what's happening in Toronto? And even to be able to begin to stage that kind of conversation, that transnational and comparative conversation, I think is really valuable. So I think that there will be um, some contributions that RADx can make to uh, enhancing the transnational aspects of your project and the potential for some comparative and collaborations across across boundaries and across these different jurisdictions that we're living in and that we're studying. And Beth, do you think that we're at a turning point when it comes to the study, the questioning, the probing of these state surveillance policies? And the reason I ask this question is because I've been thinking about the post 9-11 history and I've been thinking about the literature that came out afterwards. And a lot of what I'm seeing is, on the one hand, you have radicalization studies, part of terrorism studies, and it's very much a discourse of the state, and it's very much supposed to help the state uh, achieve various foreign policy ends, domestic policy ends. So you've got that discourse. And then you also have this pushback, a more critical type of scholarship. But this critical type of scholarship focuses oftentimes on, on Islamophobia, and it's a little bit like they're showing that there's there's a, a dark side to state surveillance, but it's it's almost as though a lot of that literature is uh, trying to focus on the innocent people out there. Like, look look what it's doing to this to these innocent people, um, and not really addressing the fact that there might be something deeply problematic with the state's own approach and its own ends, its political ends, in trying to identify the radicals in the first place. And when I say that, it's not to to uh, my words shouldn't be confused with, with me saying that we should have instability or we should allow violence to transpire, but there doesn't seem to be a light shun on the actual, um, uh, on, on the project of the state itself, on questioning that history, what, what has led us to this point. So do you see us at a kind of turning point where we're, we're shining a little bit more of a light on that and less on uh, just like uh. subjective feelings of, oh, I feel, I feel as a Muslim, you know, I'm just a regular Muslim, but I feel marginalized. Yeah, victimization, and then the sort of Islamophilia yeah, exactly. antidote that comes around. That yeah, so yeah, I definitely think that's true. I think that the critique, you know, people like Arun Kanani's book, "The Muslims Are Coming." I mean, he, he has pretty much made that critique of a lot of the counter radicalization programming and the counter radicalization literature and the definitions of extremism and radicalization that underlie it. And those presumptions, I think, have been pretty cleanly debunked. I think that part of the next challenge is really to think hard about how, you know, there, there are several different challenges. First of all, there's tactical, there are tactical challenges involving how to uh, counteract and challenge these programs. Um, and there has been very effective, I think in the US case, pushback against the counter extremism agenda. And that has taken the shape of uh, civil society groups, uh, Muslim American groups, human rights advocates, legal advocates coming together and working as a coalition to push back against the, the programming that's being, uh, the funds and the programming that is being, it's originating at DHS, but is then these funds are being dispersed and they're being put into a whole host of different local state level programs, uh, counter extremism, counter radicalization programs. And there's been a fairly effective pushback, vocal, well-organized, uh, very articulate 
uh, against these programs and uh, pointing that points very specifically to the fact that they don't have any evidence upon which to base these interventions. And the effect of them is quite nefarious because they criminalize people. And they also involve uh, getting people like school teachers, even nursery school teachers, if you can believe that, healthcare workers, psychologists, educators are all brought on and told, okay, you need to start looking for these telltale signs of extremism. Um, you know, so if your four-year-old is showing opposition to American foreign policy, then watch out. You may have an extremist on your hands. And, you know, this kind of nonsense needs to be called out. And I think these groups are being, um, are fairly successful and being quite effective in doing that. And so I'm heartened by that. And that on the tactical political side is really great. I think on the academic side, we have a, we have a different set of challenges because, you know, we can say, yes, uh, you know, this, yeah, as you said, this, you know, the narrative of victimization is not helpful and we need to turn our attention to the problems and the overreach of the state and the ways in which state surveillance is actually, um, is, is, is so problematic on so many levels. But I also feel like that is not enough either. So I feel like we're kind of at a point where uh, we need some new thinking in this field when it comes to thinking about the counter-extremism and the counter-radicalization discourse. I think that we really need to set our sights high and have a very broad canvas and think hard about what it is that we're talking about when we're talking about countering, countering violent extremism, CCVE as, um, as I have been calling it the last couple of years. Uh, and I'm not sure where that will lead next, but I do think that we have um, in the U.S. so many difficult challenges that involve the use and abuse and overuse and extreme abuse of state power, particularly executive power with the current administration, that it is going to be a much broader challenge than just countering this one node of discourse that we're going to and action and policy that we're going to have to actually take on a much bigger challenge about the kinds of powers that we want the executive to have, about the kinds of uh, foreign policy that Americans are going to tolerate, um, because obviously with the war on terror, a lot of this uh, violence is projected abroad and is undertaken in the name of the U.S., but kind of undercover at black sites, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got a lot of really big questions to, to answer. So hopefully we'll answer them all before our project's uh, time is up. Yeah, that's, that's our mission, isn't it? Beth, I want to finish off by discussing uh, your book, your book project, your current book project. I hope our, our next set of questions allow our listeners to know what you're up to right now. And uh, and I think hearing you talk about it in the past, it's giving me ideas about thinking differently about state security. And so I think it's very relevant to what we're doing in the Reading Muslims Project. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about your current book project? Of course, I'd be happy to. I'm having a lot of fun with this project. Religious freedom was a bit of a downer after a while, as you might have picked up. But studying the border, as depressing as it can be, um, and I am studying the American border now, broadly understood, is actually absolutely fascinating and kind of um, full of surprises. Beth, do you have a tentative title for your book already? Oh, I'm calling it Religion on the Border. Oh, that's a wonderful title. Yeah. 
Um, but I don't, I don't know. And I don't have a publisher yet. And I'm having a lot of fun working on it to the point where I'm not in any rush with this one. I'm enjoying taking my time and I'm enjoying, um, learning as much as I can about this topic that has every time you think you have a hold on this topic, it shifts and becomes something different, which is on the one hand, kind of frustrating, but also really fun and challenging. And because I'm not in a hurry and because I feel like, uh, there's no big rush to get this book out. I can really spend my time thinking about it and thinking with it and learning about different aspects of the border. So um, what I, the, the paradox that I am is kind of structuring or serving as the engine for the argument right now is this notion that the border is both present and absent. And when I say this to most people, they look at me like I'm crazy and they're like, well, you know, if you're one of those children who's been separated from your parents and you are put in a cage and, you know, the border is present. It is not absent. So that sounds like some snobby academic thing that you made up and it's not really, you know. But I actually am trying to think really hard about the ways in which in certain sets of political circumstances, it is as if the United States has no border or we understand ourselves as borderless. And actually, one of the most sort of poignant examples of that is going back to our earlier conversation about religious freedom because religious freedom is understood to be universal and it is it is something that we can share with the world it is boundless um, there is no limit to religious freedom and there's a sense in which the, there should be no border when it comes to religious freedom of course it doesn't end at the american border of course we want to share it with our friends in benin and our friends in burma and, uh, you know, this is something that is borderless. And the American project itself has certain built-in tendencies toward borderlessness, if we can use that word, and toward a kind of universalizing aspiration. And I'm interested in exploring those tendencies at the same time that I'm also interested in exploring uh, questions of sovereignty and questions of uh, particularly the relationship between sovereignty and religion in the American project. And I think that we have to, if we're going to talk about the border, we, the U.S. border, we have to talk about the border as a religious project. And that is a very complicated question because I think as a religious project, it is both present and absent. It is both bordered and borderless. And I'm trying to explore the implications of this imagination of the border and its political and social consequences. So this is a, a work in progress and I'm very excited about it. I think it, there are a lot of different directions it could go. And one of them obviously connects back to some of these questions of CBE and extremism. And that would be less of a question of territorial borders, but more a question of what it actually means to be American and who is a legitimate American and who qualifies for Americanness. So I'm exploring a whole bunch of these issues in this project and, uh, and having fun. It's it sounds wonderful. Um, can I ask? Thank you. Um, the uh, notion of the American project. Where do you trace that to? What time period does it emerge in in your in your study? Yeah. So I would say probably I'm thinking back to early 19th century um, consolidation of particular understandings of what it means to be American. Um, so pretty early on, we start to see that. Uh, I am not, 
I definitely don't want to give sort of a deterministic argument, and I would definitely want to suggest that all of these notions are subject to contestation and to change over time. But I do think that there are certain uh, understandings of uh, America, or the United States, the American project that are uh, that are taught in schools, that are kind of presumed in the way that we understand what our country is doing politically, what we're about as a people. And I think some of those notions are really important to understanding uh, the border and to thinking about when the border, what it, where is the border, for example? Um, where it's something that we've seen more and more in terms of, and this is the connection to state surveillance, of course, that the border has been expanding and it has become uh, something that is, some would argue, the border is everywhere, um, particularly with new technologies, um, with the ways in which state surveillance of the border is now carried out uh, through many of these partners that the government works with in many cases. This is, uh, the border itself is borderless. Um, and that is something that also brings us around to the question of surveillance and some of the questions around countering extremism. Um, because then extremism just becomes defined as potentially any form of political dissent. Mm -hmm. And uh, those become then, you know, obviously very interesting questions to start asking. I love I love the image of the border, but also borderlessness uh, when talking about the U.S. Because I think of the war on terror and how, on the one hand, it it was a, a borderless war, a global right. war. Uh, the U.S. gave itself the right to strike wherever it needed to. At the same time, so much of the discourse of the war on terror was around protecting the border, protecting. Yes from foreign threats. So it's, it's such a lovely image. It's, it's, it's so, it seems so intuitively accurate in so many ways. I'm glad you like it. I think that it's really interesting to think about the war on terror in these terms. And in some ways what I'm finding, and this is sort of the way I end up settling on a project in general, is that I am unhappy or uncomfortable with the way that people are talking about things or the way that I'm expected to understand what's going on around me. And so I need to, I'm, I'm compelled. I need to find a new way of talking about it. And I think the war on terror is a really great example. It is, I have been thinking about CVE, but they're obviously are related and, and very clear and, um, you know, it goes without saying they're related. They're part of the same complex. And I think the war on terror is just a terrific example uh, because we definitely see, we see this contradiction, which I don't think really is a contradiction. I mean, it's a constitutive paradox of the American project is what I'm suggesting, the bordered and borderlessness of the project and the ways in which polit political projects are justified and are legitimized through recourse to both uh, calls to universalism and calls to parochialism and the protection of the state or the protection of the American people or security, obviously national security. So um, we see this over and over again. One of my chapters is actually exploring national security as a form of political theology. And I think that national security rhetoric um, is, is a really interesting place to think about religion and to think um, in religious terms about what it means uh, to be human, what it means to be American, what the limits of the project are and aren't, and how, uh, how we want to orient ourselves vis-a-vis -vis a really powerful executive, um, not just under Trump, but in general, um, right. it's built into the system at this point. Yeah, that's, that's a really important 
point to uh, to keep in mind. And and Beth, how do you feel? Uh, we at the University of Toronto at the Institute of Islamic Studies can support you uh, in your project. That's very nice of you to offer. Um, you know, uh, one of the aspects that I'm thinking about in this project in terms of the borderlessness is American relations with Israel in the sense that the U.S. and Israel experience almost a borderlessness. Our interests are understood to be melded in, this, in a very particular way. And um, I would be fascinated as I try to explore this dynamic in the context of American relations with Israel to learn more about Canadian-Israeli relations and to juxtapose to understand the differences and maybe the points of contact between uh, these very different sets of international relations, which um, are arguably in some sense hardly even international in the U.S. case. I think we're talking about a very particular kind of borderlessness that interests me a lot. And it has implications also for dissent and for, um, for uh, pro-Palestinian movements of all kinds. And I'm really, really very interested in how this is playing out in the US context and would love to hear more about the Canadian situation and how um, various Canadian institutions and Canadian politicians uh, cope with um, this question and how they discursively frame these sets of issues and, uh, and relations. So I'd love to hear what you guys uh, have to say about my, my chapter on U.S. and Israel, which is uh, in progress. <laughs> but, uh, you know, with everything else going on, it's really, uh, it can be slow. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> It's a, it's a fun project. You're taking your time with it. You're going in different directions. So that's, that's for sure. It'll make it richer in the end. Um, it's interesting when you bring up um, the Canadian perspective on things. I think one of the things that uh, the Institute of Islamic Studies was hoping to achieve through this project was to take a little bit of focus uh, in, in the, the study of Islam away from, from our neighbors down south. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and to um, to kind of show that uh, in in our particular context we have a, a distinct set of questions that animate us as well and that might mm -hmm. contribute to a conversation and bring it in different directions. Absolutely, I think that there that sounds like great. It's a good plan, and I am definitely supportive of uh, maintaining the border between the U.S. and Canada. So don't worry, we're not going to come in with our invading armies quite yet. <laughs> Thank you. We, we appreciate it. <laughs> Elizabeth shackman heard. thank you so much for joining us today uh, for our, it's our first podcast for the Reading Muslims Project. And I, uh, I couldn't think of a better person to, uh, to, to start things off with than you. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Yusuf. It was my pleasure. <laughs>